Amen. Praise the Lord. Darla always does so wonderful, doesn't she? We're thankful to God. Well, folks, please, if you would, well, it's, we're going to be all over the place in the Bible today, so have your pen handy. Thought I had a good introduction today planned for the message to, to finish out chapter 3, and I was flushing out these facts about fasting in Nineveh, and uh, in doing so, I had already exhausted half of my allotted sermon time, and I barely scratched the surface on a lot of the stuff. And uh, uh, combined with that, if, if you've experienced like I have, you can read five different books on fasting and come up with five different suggestions as to what it is, or why we do it, or does it work? What does that mean, does it work? Um, so many that you read are so convoluted, really, you just you remain in a fasting fog when you're done. You know what I mean? And like you read a whole book and you're like, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do. So I decided I would devote this entire message to a topical on fasting. And I hope that we're done. Because I'm pretty convinced on this. I was, I, I was kept awake this week. In the middle of the night waking up, I was going one direction with my message, trying to close out chapter 3 of Jonah. And I was just drawn back again to fasting. And I was going through the concordance, looking up every occurrence of fasting, fasted, fast, or uh, uh, other words that, that are associated to it, and just really came to a, a peace in my heart to what the Lord is asking us to do in fasting. So I hope it works that way as well. If you have other questions, this is a, a topic that has so many ideas about it. By all means, come and ask me. You know, later, it's like, had you thought about this, or is there other, any other application? But nonetheless, like Luther... Unless I'm convinced by Scripture, I shall not recant. All right. As we departed last week, we learned Nineveh's, uh, they were experiencing remorse over sin. They were re- experiencing remorse. They were very distressed over a looming judgment that was coming upon them. And we consistently found in the Old Testament, as we looked at many different passages, that wearing sackcloth and sitting in ashes were actions of mourning. They were behaviors of sadness. Today we'll see mourning is also expressed through what we call fasting. We left off in verse 7 of Jonah chapter 3, which said this, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them drink water. So like wearing sackcloth, Fasting is a demonstration of sorrow over sin, I believe you'll be convinced today, or sorrow over desperate circumstances that you are in. Fasting was used by Nineveh to display their, their genuineness of remorning. Their mourning was, was, was true. The king also instructed everyone, earnestly cry out to the Lord, call out to the Lord, he said, he might spare us. So they're in a desperate situation, looming destruction. All the above, sackcloth, ashes, and fastings, were demonstrations of remorse over sin and despair over circumstances. Circumstances usually that were outside their control, actually always outside their control. But we have to acknowledge that as we look here at Nineveh, we have a pagan king, right? He's not exactly a Hebrew prophet. He is not a scholar of the Scriptures. This is just simply what he declared. So the question has to be asked, can we consistently connect this same ritual of fasting? Can we we bind it 
This reliance upon God, sorrow, and fasting elsewhere in Scripture. Especially, can we see it among the Hebrews? And the answer is very clear. Yes, we can. We can. In Esther chapter 4, if you're familiar with that book, the Jews are about to be exterminated by Haman. He had a sinister plot. It was sanctioned by decree of the king. Very serious situation again. Looming destruction. Verse 1 says of Esther chapter 4, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out in the midst of the city, and he wailed loudly and bitterly. We see the sorrow again. And then later in verse 14 of the same chapter, Mordecai petitioned Queen Esther. She was a Jew in secret, remember. She was subject to this, this elimination of the Jews. And Mordecai asked her to go to the king, attempt to get him to reverse his decree. A very serious situation for her to go in front of the king. Mordecai tells her in verse 14, For if you remain silent at this time... Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish, because she was Jewish. And who knows, he told her, whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, meaning the couriers that would take the message, say to Mordecai this, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa, And fast for me, do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus, I will go in to the king, which is not according to the law. Meaning she wasn't supposed to do it. And she says this, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai, it says, went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Now notice This fasting, again, was sorrow, lament over circumstances, desperate circumstances. It offers no guarantee. Esther said, if I perish, I perish. What she's saying is, I'm going to do what I can. God is in control in this situation where it's out of control. We see these elements repeatedly bound together in Scripture. Remorse, mourning, sackcloth, ashes, fasting. And And they signify situations where complete dependence upon God is necessary. Reliance upon God, situations that are outside of man's control. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, we see this again. Nehemiah records in verse 2, some men from Judah came, back from Jerusalem this is, and Nehemiah asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped captivity and had survived the captivity and asked about Jerusalem. They said to me, excuse me, um, Nehemiah says, The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Nehemiah Nehemiah records, When I hear these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Notice the theme. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I'm praying before you now. Notice he's praying. Hear the prayer of your servant. You now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, 
I'm confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned, Nehemiah says. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you have commanded your servant Moses. So here we observe, like Nineveh, another occasion of remorse over sin. Desperate circumstances back in Jerusalem. We see remorse, we see confession, we see mourning and weeping. We see fasting. He asked God to hear his intercession. Heed my prayer, Nehemiah says. He didn't ask. You know, notice my fasting. Fasting is represented as an expression of just how genuine Nehemiah's sorrow was. He was sorrowful over sin, along with his acknowledgement that he's completely dependent upon God to intervene in this. Nothing Nehemiah could do without God uh, coming into the situation. So fasting is, is not a mechanism to get your way. It's not a way to, to tug at the heartstrings of God. It's acknowledging your inability to control your circumstances. You can note as we continue that King David, he was guilty of adultery, murder as well. He fasted and he prayed and he wept over his dying child, the one by Bathsheba. God did not save the child. I guess it didn't work. Fasting didn't work. We'll get, we'll get on with that. It's not about working. It's not identified as a mechanism. It's identified as an expression of grief and sorrow. King David also fasted when Joab had killed Abner, if you remember. That would be 2 Samuel chapter 3. David fasted. Abner was already dead. It was an expression of sorrow. It wasn't to get his way with anything. The prophet Daniel, as we turn to Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. It says, in the first year of Darius's reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books of the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the complete completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. That's how long they were going to be exiled. And Jerusalem, again, was desolated. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications, Daniel says, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, look at the confession again, confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Daniel says this, We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your covenant and ordinances. Notice the lament and the sorrow over sin. Notice the lament over the circumstances in Jerusalem. Then we see after a a really prolonged confession of Israel's specific sins, Daniel summarizes his his petition. Daniel Daniel 9, verse 16. He says, O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath be turned away from your city Jerusalem. Sound like Nineveh? Your holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications, Daniel says. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. 
Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits on its own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. Sorrow over sin, confession of sin, sackcloth, ashes, fasting, complete dependence upon God. Please notice again, Daniel asked God to hear his prayer. He doesn't ask God to, hey, did you notice I'm fasting? The sackcloth, the the ashes, it's not a mechanism. God's not our puppet. We can't control Him through our behaviors. In all these occasions, the sackcloth, ashes, and fasting are manifestations of sincerity. Sincerity towards God. They indicate a complete dependence upon God's ability to step in. His sovereignty. Situations outside our control. So the question asks, after all of these... What if you were to remove one of these components linked with fasting? Let's say you took out sorrow. Take that out of the equation. If you remove the element of sorrow and mourning from the fasting, is it still fasting? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because there were people in the Bible who offered God just such a fast, if you can believe that. Directly before the exile to Babylon, Israel was in trouble. The uh, prophet Isaiah was prophesying judgment against them. Israel was, at the same time, ceremonially fasting. But the fasting had actually just become a ceremony. It was a facade. Uh, There was no genuine sorrow associated with it. No remorse accompanying, accompanying these fasts. Their fasts were superficial didn't include turning from sin. So in Isaiah 58, verse 3, Israel asked God a question. They pose a question to God and they say this, Why have we fasted and you do not see? What do they want him to notice? The fasting. Why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? They asked the Lord. Really good question. God, why don't you notice our fasting? God provides them his answer by saying this. Behold, on the day of of your fast, you find your desire, meaning they cheat, and drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. It didn't equate to prayer. It is a Fast like this which I choose, God says, a day for man to humble himself. Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even a day acceptable to the Lord? Obviously, obvious answer, no. All the elements are there. Sackcloth, ashes, fasting, no sorrow. They did the outward motions, but their heart had not mourned over their sin. God continues by describing a fast that would have resembled repentance and sorrow over sins 
in the same context, verse 6. God says, Is this not the fast which I choose, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, meaning turning from sin, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor and poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover the, him, and to not to hide yourself from your own flesh? That's what I'm saying. That's what you should be doing is repenting. All your sins are still there. He makes this promise. Then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. A theme kind of becomes clear there, doesn't it? Fasting itself, especially by itself, it's not a trigger. What moves God's heart is sincerity of prayer, sorrow over sin. Sometimes, but not always. You can go through the Old Testament New Testament and find plenty of other occasions uh, where there's sorrow over sin without fasting. It's not a necessary requirement to see prayers answered or to see God work or to express sorrow. It's one way of expressing, of expressing sorrow. God rejected Israel's fasting because their fasting it was just a show. There was no sorrow involved. Would this, uh, this would imply that a fast without a genuine heartfelt remorse or, or a longing to be saved from a, from a particular situation, a desperate situation, that to God would be an unwelcome fast. He says, if you don't have that component in it, I don't care what you're doing. Is there anywhere else in Scripture where we might find fasting offered as a show without genuine remorse? How about those Pharisees? As we move to the New Testament, to look at what we see there, uh, though there were, there were exceptions with the Pharisees, Nicodemus was one in general. Jesus consistently characterizes the Pharisees uh, uh, as hypocrites. They just want to be seen. That's all they really want, to be noticed for their righteousness. They loved outward expressions. Inside they had dead men's bones. The Pharisees fasted. They fasted. Pharisees also realized correctly that fasting was supposed to be associated with sorrow, with gloom. They got that part right. They knew that because that's what the Old Testament taught. They were supposed to be seen as having despair with fasting. But like our example in Isaiah, their fasting, it was just an exhibition to draw attention to themselves and to try to get their way. In Matthew, we begin to see how those wineskins we talked about in our scripture reading earlier, how they represent now something new. Still wineskins, meaning it's still fasting, but something new about it. It's going to be different, even though it's the same. Many of these different things, wineskins and others, it's the same thing, but in a different way applied. Uh, this is from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. And, and look now how the new wine and wineskins of fasting are different. Jesus says, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they've had their reward in full. 
But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in in secret will reward you. So Jesus indicates among his followers there's going to be something new. Sorrow and fasting will be done when it's done, still under the correct circumstances, but it's going to be done without drawing attention to it. The visual element is canceled. That's not all. In the same chapter, uh, that'd be chapter 6 again, Matthew 6, Jesus begins by saying this, Beware of of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. That'd mean any act of righteousness. You don't do it to be noticed. For the sake of being noticed by others, Jesus also tosses in a couple more examples for us just to continue the illustration. He says, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. They do that in the place of worship. And on the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. We are to give in secret. God will reward us in secret. When you pray, Jesus says, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, the places of worship. They're drawn to them. And on the street corners even, where they could be seen, Jesus said, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. It's done in secret. You know, so much emphasis in churches today. So much is on displaying yourself as being something special, something righteous. Putting your spirituality on display. Supposedly, those who would be dancing or waving flags or jumping about, running through the aisles, supposedly they'd be the most spiritual. You know, you ever seen where, you remember from when you were young, teenagers... You know, getting into it, you know, waving and everything. And every once in a while they open their eyes. Anybody else doing this? We're all together in this, right? Done to be noticed. Even in conservative circles such as ourselves, you know, emphasis can be very much placed on people up in front of others. I'm going to give an example. Just to regard them as spiritual. Rita and I, I don't think I've given this example before. Before we came here, we were in North Texas, and uh, we were guests at a church, Easter, or maybe the week before Easter, Palm Sunday, and about double this size, a lot of people, and they called the men up to pray. They had a very, you know, guilting story about how you need to be a leader of your home and the Father, good, decent stuff, but they said, if you're going to be part of this, and if you're going to show us you're committed to this, you're a man, you're going to come up here right now and pray. Well, everybody starts to go. I'm first-time guest. Everybody starts to come forward, and they gather around in a pulpit, probably 30 men, and I'm, I'm sitting there as a guest, and I look around, I'm like, well, I guess I better go up there. What are they going to say about me if I don't? How many others are going forward just because they're really concerned about what someone else has to say about them? Christianity is not a religion of drawing attention to self or being noticed by others. Jesus says it is of modesty. It's of humility. Always directing attention to Christ. 
So with that, understanding these portions of things, I know y'all were struggling about this since last week. Do we wear sackcloth and sit in ashes today? Outward expression? No. Anybody struggle with that? Why did Jesus say you would be wearing uh, sackcloth and sitting in ashes? No. That's, we don't do those outward expressions. First, people think you're crazy. Second, Christianity is not an outward display of self. It's really not. Um, you know, we do, Pastor Weiler and myself, he'll be up leading worship. You'll see people uh, in their seats with tears in their eyes. They'll be moved by God. They may even, from time to time, dismiss themselves and go back to a private room to pray. You'll see people long and mourn over what's being sung and about what uh, God's Word is saying. Sometimes the emotions of God come out in unpredictable ways. We had a guy cry in the pulpit once. You don't, you, you don't predict that stuff yeah, more than once. You, you can't predict that stuff. God's Spirit just moves. So we're not just cold, dead people. We're emotional beings. But we don't draw, come together for the purpose of emotion and putting ourselves on display. You know, mourning, sadness, complete dependence upon God in the, in the desperate situations, it's a significant part of our faith as Christians. Significant part. Fasting can be a part of that if the desperation, the sorrow is genuine. It sure can. However, we have to note that Jesus is only recorded in Scripture as fasting one time. Only one time. That was uh, as he was led out into the wilderness. He fasted, complete dependence upon God. Obviously, he didn't have to sorrow over sin. He had none. But he was completely dependent upon God to deliver him from Satan's trials. He didn't fast again. No record of him fasting again in Scripture. Not even in Gethsemane. His most passionate prayer. Like, like droplets of blood, we are told. No record of adding in fasting. Um, his disciples did not fast. I'm under the impression with that that Jesus did not again fast. Perhaps with, with ceremonially uh, keeping the law with the Day of Atonement or something like that. It's not recorded. And he said they can't fast while he is with them, so I'm anticipating he also did not fast. That's consistent with everything we see so far. In Matthew 9, 14, we have a parallel account of this where Jesus gives us an understanding of fasting again. Our scripture reading earlier about John's disciples coming. And here's a parallel account that sheds some more light. Matthew 9, 9, 14 says, The disciples of John came to him, meaning Jesus, asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? Notice, they can't mourn. They can't be sad. But the days will come, he says, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast, meaning they will mourn. That happened after the crucifixion. Do you think there was some mourning and some fasting after they took Christ away? Certainly, we can expect there was. Um, two additional references Follow, fa- follow Christ's resurrection to fasting in the New Testament. That is all. After his resurrection, only two more references to fasting. They both occur very early on in the church. The first is in Acts chapter 13. And here we see the Holy Spirit set apart Paul and Barnabas to missions, right? Everybody remembers this one. And, and many want to use this 
as the model for churches. Model for fasting. Supposedly, we are to fast so that the Holy Spirit will speak to us. Boy, that's sure a new slant on things, isn't it? After everything we've learned. There's some huge problems with that interpretation. First, if you actually follow the timeline, the development of the narrative in Acts, and instead you don't just flip open your Bible and start at Acts 13, you'll notice that Paul and Barnabas had just returned to Antioch, Antioch Bible Church, and they had just gotten back from delivering food to Jerusalem, which was suffering a famine and great persecution. Severe persecution. They also likely returned with the news that James had now been murdered by Herod. They probably also brought the news that Peter had been arrested. Probably by that time, Peter had also been released miraculously. But Jerusalem was a church uh, experiencing severe persecution. That's the context of what is going on as they return to Antioch. Second, the passage in Acts never indicates they were fasting as a mechanism to hear the Holy Spirit speak. never says that's why they were fasting. You, you can't just read that in. Remember we take clear passages from Scripture where it's very clear and we interpret the unclear from what is clear. You can't just, out of your mind, out of your imagination, make the reason up and add it in. Every, every other occasion in the Bible where the Holy Spirit gives utterance, and there are many of them, there's no mention of fasting. So we don't see that as the pivotal ingredient. Um, prayer and fasting is not provided as a prescription for hearing from God's Spirit. Uh, remaining in harmony with what the Bible and Jesus consistently teach about with fasting, Antioch was fasting out of sorrow over what had happened in the church in Jerusalem. They were mourning. They weren't just praying and, hey, let's have a fast. Maybe the Holy Spirit will speak. The Holy Spirit hadn't spoken through a fast before. Um, Antioch was fasting out of sorrow, demonstrating a complete reliance on God for his provision with the persecuted church, those who were suffering. There's one other reference to fasting in the church age, and that's when Paul and Barnabas appoint elders in Galatia. They had suffered great persecution, Paul and Barnabas, that'd be in, in Lystra, Iconium, Sidian, Antioch, that's a different Antioch, and Derby. Paul was at one point drug out of the city and stoned so severely that they thought he was dead. They just left him for dead. But Paul got up. And in Acts chapter 14, verse 21, it says that Paul and Barnabas, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. That's where the persecution came from. They returned, strengthening the souls of the disciples, it says, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying this, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord, those whom they had believed. So again, we see a very desperate situation. It's consistent with biblical principles of fasting. They had suffered. They had been persecuted. They were utterly dependent upon God to deliver them from the circumstances in that region. Fasting is never again mentioned going forward in the New Testament. That's the last mention of it. 
So repeatedly and consistently in, in the Bible, fasting is an expression of sorrow, remorse over sin, sorrow or despondence over circumstances, desperate circumstances, and a complete reliance upon God to deliver you from that circumstance. That, that's what fasting is. Uh, and, and there are circumstances when you have no idea what to do. We looked at persecution, uh, annihilation of the Jews, murder of the apostles, serious stuff. Some other important points about fasting as found in the Bible, and these are the tasty facts about fasting. I'm going to give you these facts, and then we'll pray. First, and go ahead and contact me. If you, if you say, ah, I don't know, did you look at this passage? Bring it, that's fine. Number one, you fast from food. Food is one of those things that is not easily gone without. Fasting is never described as something other than food in the Bible. Like television. Are you really sorrowful and, and really sacrificing? or you, Not even sacrificing. It doesn't even mention it as a sacrifice. Forget I ever said that word. Are you really sorrowful and dependent upon God by giving up late night television? Do you really need that to exist? Remorse and fasting is expressed by going without something difficult to go without with. Or to go without. So I'd suggest something else difficult to go without like maybe breathing. Can you fast from breathing? It's got to be something difficult to go without, to go, because of the seriousness of the situations that they were always in. Number two, as 1 Corinthians 7 suggests, you might withdraw, um, in a married situation, you might withdraw from sex for a season to have a private, solemn devotional. That is not a sexual fast. I've heard it called that. No, it's not. It's describing, uh, it's not describing a sorrow and remorse over sin or desperate circumstance. Paul does not refer to that as a fast. It was just a season where they gave something up in order to have a devotional time. Um, three, fasting is not a diet plan. That's the big one today. Uh, hang with me. There is no Daniel diet fast. All right? You say, you better explain that one. In Daniel chapter 1... Daniel is not fasting. Very clearly, Daniel is actually eating in that context. He's eating, not fasting. Uh, the reason provided for refusing the king's food and the king's wine is because Daniel did not want to ceremonially defile himself. That is the reason given. We don't observe a Daniel diet fast today because according to Jesus in Mark 7, foods no longer ceremonially defile us. doesn't happen. It says, uh, Mark chapter 7, Jesus declared all foods clean. All foods are clean. Daniel's diet, di- Daniel's diet, yeah, is, is not our diet today. It, uh, it's not a fast to make you thinner. What does it say in that context? Do you remember? He didn't get thinner. He and his friends got fatter, more fleshy. That was by God's hand honoring what they did. They ate all vegetables, and they actually got fatter than the king's guys. Try to promote that diet plan on Facebook. You're going to get fatter. Um, That same scripture clearly indicates that their their Daniel diet made them fatter. Um, 
they never remotely suggest there, uh, from what I can gather, that he did it for health reasons. Though you may, as I said earlier in the scripture reading, have a health situation where you need to do that. Um, typically, I understand, if I understand correctly, eating exclusively vegetables without God's hand in it, that would actually make you less healthy to do it exclusively. But nonetheless, if you believe it's healthier eating vegetables, you may be right. I may be crazy. Um, Fasting or cleansing may have some health benefits. There There are people more knowledgeable about that than I that can help you. But you can't say the Bible tells us to fast for health reasons. It doesn't. It doesn't. Um, In fact, if you're a certain type of diabetic, you probably better not fast, the way I understand things. Uh, You also, if you don't fast or you're diabetic like that, you don't have to feel you're spiritually handicapped from everyone else. You're not lesser than everyone else because the Bible never explicitly tells us to fast. There's some other good ones here coming up. Number four. We have no indication that fasting itself makes you closer to God. Your mourning over sin might draw you closer to God. What did James say? Draw near to me, cleanse yourself, you sinners, and I will draw near to you. That might draw you closer to God. Fasting might even be an expression of that sorrow in the church age, but it's sorrow. Superficial fasting uh, fasting without accompanying accompanying sorrow is condemned in Scripture. So it's not just a, a little time to get close with God. That's not the purpose of a fast. Or you might hear this. I've heard these before too. You know, God and I, we feel so close when I fast. He even speaks to me. You know, that, that, that's a derivative of that Acts 13 passage. They've read that in. Uh, that's imagination. That's what it is. God speaks to us through His written Word. A lot of people don't spend much time in that. God will speak, all right, He does, through the Word. Number five, we have no indication that fasting will provide a deeper understanding of Scripture. We have no indication that it would help enhance Bible study, help you find some hidden meaning. If that were actually the case, which is not, but if that were actually the case we would surely be prompted in the epistles to fast. No doubt about it, because we're told to long for the Word repeatedly over and over again, all over the place in the epistles by the apostles, but we're never told to enhance that some way with fasting. Do you think they just forgot? If it actually was a mechanism for that, which it's not, do you think they would not have described it as that? Here's another one. Fasting does not increase your success rate of evangelism. The apostolic epistles do repeatedly encourage us to pray that there be open doors for the gospel. That's relying on God, right? They say preach and teach the word because in 1 Timothy 4.16 it says, as you do this you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So if the efficacy of evangelism was increased by fasting, do you not think that the Apostle Paul would say along with those situations and remember to fast? Doesn't do it. Paul would have never left that out. No one was a greater evangelist than Paul. He says, preach the word. Never never 
ties fasting to how successful you're going to be with it. Seventh, fasting is not a contributing resource to making wise life decisions. You're like, ooh, explain that one. I think I can. People ask things like, should I expand my business? Which college should I choose? On which street should I buy a home? How many square feet should I get? I would even add, you know, should we extend, extend the sanctuary for more seating? We don't have to fast for these. We don't have to fast for these. In doing so, we are elevating mere matters of choice, neither of which is sinful. House on Monterey, house on Cameo. Either one sinful? No. We are elevating matters of choice that are left to our decisions to the level of annihilation of the Jews or the murder of the apostles. We're making really big deals out of something that really isn't that big a deal. For wise life decisions, we do have instruction. James says, Let us ask of God who supplies liberally and it will be given. Ask of God for wisdom in in life circumstances, regardless of your life circumstances. James simply tells us, ask for wisdom, wisdom to make choices. He never says, fast for wisdom. If that's really how wisdom came, do you think James would have left that out? No. That's not how it comes, because that's not what we see repeatedly in the Scripture as fasting. Um... I don't know how it could get any clearer. You know, David, Esther, Jesus, they didn't fast for choices. Esther, she had made her choice to go to the king. She wasn't fasting. Should I go to the king? No, it's after she made the decision. Number eight, fasting by itself does not crucify the flesh. This is going to be another one I might get an email on, but that's fine. Think it out. Fasting by itself does not crucify the flesh, meaning it is not a mechanism to reduce sinning. The Pharisee at the temple in Luke 18, he fasted twice a week. He was carnal. Fasting itself doesn't affect that. We get no indication in the Old Testament uh, other than mourning over sin uh, that it would be related to that. Uh, The fact that he fasted actually made the Pharisee very what? Proud. Pride through fasting. That's what we've got to watch for. Um... Scripture actually teaches the denial of physical sustenance does not contribute one iota to spirituality. We see in Colossians chapter 2, this would be in verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink. Verse 18, that indicates that the church is being deceived by people with self-inflated egos, inflated by their fleshly minds, it says, and they were preaching abstinence of all types of stuff. Stay away from it and you'll be spiritual, they're telling them. And then in verse 20, why do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teaching of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, Paul says, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, means denying the body, He says, but they're of no value against fleshly indulgence. None. Actually, what he says is they make you prideful. One other spot, 1 Timothy 4.3 in regards to this. It actually indicates that those who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods 
which God created to to be shared gratefully, it says those are doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy 4.3. So we have to be very careful about fasting. Uh, The last one, fasting is not about a mechanism to get your way. David fasted, the child died. Fasting is no indicator of what God will decide to do. By faith, we just leave it up to God. As the king of Nineveh said in verse 9, Who knows? God may relent. Queen Esther said, I will go to the king. If I perish, I perish. So fasting absolutely indicates a submission to the will of God when you have no other recourse. You don't know what to do. First, fasting uh, acknowledges us to God. I'm just gray matter. I'm nothing. You're in charge. If the Lord wills, We'll do this or that or the other thing. If the Lord wills, we'll be saved. But I'm just a vapor. That's all I am. His divine response is completely up to Him. If you enter a fast for the purpose of receiving something in return, by default, you're just trying to manipulate God. That'd be just like Israel who cried out, Why have we fasted and you don't see? God wasn't pleased. Which brings us to our closing application. In Matthew 17, verse 14, I think this sums it up for us. There is a demon in a boy whom the disciples could not cast out. They asked Jesus, why? Jesus replied, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. This is a very obscure passage. A very contested passage, actually. It's probably in brackets in your Bible. But nonetheless, Jesus said it only comes out by prayer and fasting. But to remain consistent with what we know about fasting, the only interpretation I can come up with is that Jesus' disciples weren't able to cast out the demoniac because they had no sorrow for him. No compassion No remorse. No concern. The boy's condition was horrible. He was falling into the fire and they couldn't cast it out. Jesus actually, in context, rebukes the disciples for their littleness of faith. They were trying to cast out a demon in the flesh rather than giving glory to God. They were knocking him out. Some other people did that, the seven sons of Siva. They thought they were going to go knock it out too. They got knocked out. Um, They'd probably gotten a little too used to putting on the show, had lost the heart or didn't have the heart. Uh, The passage is provided to show that we can do nothing without God. That's what that passage is there for. But even with a little faith, it says in the same context, we will see mountains moved. It's all about reliance on God. Same theme that we've been looking at. And we're not taught by that passage to, to be sure to assess, you know, well, what, what model demon do you have there? Is this the one for fasting or is this the one without fasting? Oh, what, what type of ritual should we prescribe for this, this one? Fasting three days or fasting one day? Not at all. Not at all provided for that. It's a very remote, obscure passage in Scripture. Nothing else teaches on that. That's just superstition. Just superstition. Um, we have to be taught that we rely on God. Whether we're removing a demon, whether Christians are being annihilated, which they are in some locations, 
or a church is being persecuted, or the situation is very desperate. It's always a desperate situation in Scripture. Um, Are we called to fast today? My impression is, if you are experiencing sorrow, sadness, despondence over a situation, over sin especially, over something outside your control that is very important, it is appropriate to fast and leave it in God's hands. Um, He'll take care of your sorrows. But it's for desperate situations. It's not for the purpose of deciding which college to get into. You don't see that type of thing in Scripture at all. It's not a mechanism for expanding your business clientele. That's not what we see in Scripture. There, There is one question then. How do I know if I'm fasting correctly? What is the appropriate number of days? How long? It's only one question. Are you sincere? Are you sincerely sorry? Are you truly relying upon God? If that question is yes, the rest is not an issue. Not an issue about how effective it's going to be. Is your heart right and are you trusting in God? I'd agree with many who say that it would be accurate under grace that Christians are not expressly required to fast in the New Testament. Not required to fast. Uh, We are nonetheless required to uh, display remorse over sin. We are nonetheless called to anguish over people who are dying and going to hell. We are nonetheless called to pray for Christ's church where it's being persecuted, where people are dying, where they have no food around the globe, Christ's, Christ's people. We are called to that. Those are all desperate situations where we would know that God would have to step in, right? And I would say when the American church finally gets serious about what God is serious about, we are going to begin to see some fasting among us. That's my impression.